Hello and welcome to the Spinners Podcast. My name is Riley and each week we listen to three random 45 RPM vinyls my best friend Nils bought off of eBay. This week we have Izzy Freyden in with us. She works with the Numero Group, which is a really cool reissue record label company that I'm super into. How are you doing this evening, Izzy? I'm pretty good. How are you guys? Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Numero Group is one of the craziest and most creative record labels I've ever come across on my internet searches. How would you express the mission statement of the business? Before all else, it's storytelling, right? Um, we're an archival label, and so much of what we do is about telling the stories and the histories of music that no one else has really done justice to or told at all. So that comes first. And then another really big point that my boss always emphasizes is our consistent aesthetic and being really visually forward and artistically forward and intentional about the way that we present the music from our spines and our playlists and all those sorts of things. Who gets to decide on the themes of the reissue albums? It depends and it has varied a lot in the time that I've been there. So certain releases are just sort of like one-to-one -one reissues of things that had existed in the past that someone, you know, kind of like what you guys do, found on eBay or digging through a record store. People don't know the record and we find the artist and we decide you know, to put it out again and, and so sometimes it happens that way. Other times we sort of have these like collective ideas for compilations that almost everyone, you know, pitches in to the sort of digging of what is going to go into that compilation. So it, it kind of varies case by case. And my bosses ultimately, Rob and Ken, have the final say on everything. What is your personal favorite release from Numero so far? I mean, there's so many that I love. How about let's limit it to the last like year because it's too much otherwise. <laughs> we just put out the Female Species record, which is really great. And last year, the Whispers record that we did which is part of the Cabinet of Curiosities and is sort of a compilation of original lounge music that we packaged as a matchbook. That one I really love. And when we did all of the reflection stuff last August, I think, I was listening today to that Robert Williams Scott record again, and that one um, definitely underrated. Uh, we only did that one digitally, but um, it's a great record. I wanted to shout out that one. Is it Lewis Wayne Moody High? Lewis Wayne Moody High, uh-huh. It's like packaged just like a like a yearbook. fake yearbook. It's really crazy. <laughs> How do you guys come up with like the overarching story for your reissue albums? Well, so Moody High and Whispers are part of this line that we call the Cabinet of Curiosities. My favorite part of being at Numero is the Cabinet of Curiosities because it's really the most, a lot of what we do is reissuing other people's music where we're the curators, but we're not the artists. And when it comes to the Cabinet of Curiosities, we kind of get to step into um, the creator role a little more. Each of the releases in the cabinet is packaged in a really specific way. There's Escape from Sin City, which is like an NES game. And we commissioned a team to actually make the video game Escape from Sin City. We made it totally free and available online, escapefromsincity.com, and the music in the game is the soundtrack of the LP, done in like an 8-bit style. Then Planisphere is packaged like an actual Planisphere, and it works. If you hold it up to the night sky, it will show you constellations. It's the only picture disc Numero has ever done. Um, That's awesome. And then yeah, yeah, yeah. And I could go on. I mean, each of the releases is really amazing. And they all, the narrative 
that really is like a marketing effort around what goes into them but then also like you know the signatures in moody high and the carl jansky planetary moment for planisphere and um some of the details that are in numero 95 and in the escape from sin city video game like all of them are part of an interconnected universe that we've like constructed and there have been some zany meetings where we have like gone over the details like we (laughs) had to storyboard the Louis Wayne Moody High yearbook murder mystery so we like literally yeah storyboarded the whole thing and then we built worked backwards and basically like built signatures that would like hint at the story in different ways and like build this narrative throughout the yearbook and then we all got like our moms and our grandmas because none of us could write in cursive so we oh all my were like god you got yeah you got your grandparents yeah. involved that's so cool and it's probably time period accurate right because the 60s yeah we used a lot of our like grandparents yearbooks as inspiration in fact most of the people in the Louis Wayne, I don't know if I'm supposed to be saying this, but most of the people <laughs> in the Louis Wayne Moody High yearbook are actually Ken, my boss's, Ken Shipley's mom's yearbook. That is so um, cool. Huh. Oh my God. I'm yeah. so glad we're talking about it. Yeah. Trade trade secrets. <laughs> Those are a lot of fun. And we, we have a few more coming. So there's been eight releases in the cabinet and I think we have two more we're going to round it out because we still have people and it's funny like I manage our social media and stuff and and about like once every month or so someone is like so what happened to Cheryl like we gotta know what happened to Cheryl um and I'm like the people are demanding answers like we gotta get we gotta get to them um but their answers are coming we're working on it that's so interesting (laughs) I didn't even know that that was going on I thought there was this kind of this like vibey abstract story but I didn't know that there was like a definitive ending so i'm really excited to see how that plays out yeah i mean and you'll see like carl jansky's signature is in the yearbook and like he's like a character from planisphere and he also appears in the video game um there's just like all these little interconnected bits um and it's it's been a lot of fun to be a part of man it's such an adventure just like listening to all these different albums i love that music can take on such a new meaning so long after it was released and sometimes even after the people who made it have passed away i think a theme that i've noticed in a lot of the numeral releases is like spirituality and these kind of abstract journeys into the soul which leads me to ask you about Uh, the role of music and spirituality in your life and how do those two things intersect? That is a big question. I'll preface it by saying I consider myself a very spiritual person and I think that I'm definitely, at least at Numero, I think from the conversations that I've had, a lot of my coworkers have like spiritual tendencies but I don't think any of them like kind of practice to the same degree that Mm -hmm. I do. I, I think for a lot of them it's like new age and like uh, spirituality and divinity is sort of like a fascination more so than like a lifestyle if that makes sense I, I mean I think music and art are inherently spiritual because I'll get a little uh, esoteric with you for a moment um, but right like everything is energy and vibration this is physics you know and uh, our consciousness you know becomes a reflection of the stimuli that we receive and um, vibrates, you know, as a result of um, the stimuli. And music obviously carries a sonic 
uh, vibration, but art, visual art, you know, has visual vibration and all of that. So in that way, art has this like inherent capacity to alter the vibration of your consciousness, you know, in like various uh, astrological prescriptions and um, personality tests and stuff. I, I've often like been given the, the association that like music, I'm someone who's like especially sensitive to music. Obviously everyone's sensitive to music. There's just a sensitivity to it that I've always had. And I've been, I mean, I've had like numerous out of body experiences listening to music. Music has always, you know, been something for me that I take, you know, in a very spiritual, I consume it in a way that I at least attempt to make very spiritual, very holy. So yeah, I, I don't know if that answers your question. No, that was a beautifully worded response. Oh my God. I think some of the things you said there were so mind blowing. I love that. Yeah, I, I love the connecting the vibrations to music. That That's a gorgeous, yeah, sentiment. Yeah, and I think, like, I'll say, too, that I think, like, the best art and the best music is the stuff that raises your vibrational energy, that raises your awareness and your consciousness. And I think, like, as, as a consumer, that's what I'm always looking for. And that's, like, also why, like, there's no, I don't think there's such thing as like objective good music necessarily, but I do think there is something objective about art that can objectively raise consciousness, you know? Like you can like it or not like it, but like great art is great when it is able to like raise the collective consciousness in some way. Me and you, or you know, a bunch of people can point to the same thing and it like creates this internal feeling of like me too you know like i relate i connect to this and that is i think like <laughs> uh not to be too lofty but like <laughs> the ultimate endeavor of art itself oh you know? yeah oh, <laughs> there it is <laughs> <laughs> oh you boys have got me crazy <laughs> beautiful all of this leads me to asking you about Van Morrison because mm. I know you and I are both uh, deeply in love with the 1968 record Astral Leaks. Already some of the things in this conversation that we've touched upon I think are relevant to this album. I heard about it kind of all at once, like it started popping up in different places in my life and I'm like, okay, fine, I guess I'll listen to it. And I listened to it and it really was one of those albums that changed the way I looked at everything and it really felt like such an important, it came to me at an important moment in my life. And I have a feeling it probably had an, a similar effect with you. So I would love to hear your story about when you first heard it and what it means to you. Can we just have like a little summary of what, what like the genre of the album is, what themes it tackles, that kind of thing. Okay, well, uh, Van Morrison was kind of in like a early classic, not classic rock, before that, kind of like folk rock band called Them. And then he went out uh, solo and he made this album. He, he always has kind of had a weird relationship with producers, but he made this like folk album uh, with some pop songs and it did kind of well. So his second solo album was Astral Weeks and it came out in 1968. And it's this insane kind of folk jazz, I guess lounge in some ways record, where a lot of it is kind of like this backing jazz band with like jazz stand-up bass, like bass is a really big part of it, and strings. Mm -hmm orchestral inspiration uh, and then the lyrics are these just weird kind of uh, spur of the moment improvisations kind of like scatting at some points 
I, I think jazz is the best, I, but even that feels kind of too simple because it's like jazz folk. The themes are hard to describe because I, it, a lot of the images are kind of just impressionistic and random, mm -hmm. at first at least. I think of it as kind of cosmic cycles in dealing with the past and the future. The lyric uh, tenses are pretty strange and they fluctuate mm -hmm. wildly. Only some of the songs are future tense, most of them are past tense. Is that right, Izzy? I don't something like that. But uh, there's something really magical on that record that really defies <laughs> easy observation. <laughs> yeah. Nils, have you heard the record? I have not, and I'm assuming mm. any, most I, I sent it to him er earlier, but I guess I didn't do a good enough job hyping it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you're not sold now, I don't know. <laughs> oh, I'm sold um, now, I'm sold. Yeah, you're gonna have to give it a listen, I think. I mean, I grew up with it. My parents are both big Van Morrison fans. This, they danced to Van Morrison at their wedding. I mean, he talks about in certain interviews and having, you know, true mystical experiences, having dreams and visions and all that is somewhat based on true life. Um, the, the sort of whimsical quality of the visions and the fantasy sort of descriptions are, are based on his visions that he's had. So Van Morrison, I feel like, is a complicated guy to love. I don't know about your political views, and obviously we don't have to get into all that if you don't want to. But uh, recently he's released some anti-lockdown songs. His new record is going to come out in May, and it's got some really uh, questionable song titles about uh, ties into conspiracy theories and stuff, and not the mystical kind, more of the like conservative, scary yeah. kind to me. So I'm interested in how you can go from this guy who in the 60s was singing about beautiful spiritual enlightenment is now singing about uh, Facebook conspiracy theories. What do you think, I mean, how do you think that can happen to an artist? And Do they close their connection to the divine? Like, how does that work? He's always had a stick up his ass. I mean, he's always been <laughs> yeah. a money grabbing, mean, not nice to women dude. You know, like, there. he's always had his shit. And like, if, and that's the other thing too, is like, Artists are people. Don't meet your heroes. You know, like, if you put anyone on a pedestal, you're bound to be disappointed. And Van, even during Astro Weeks, you know, and, and the whole thing when with his record deal with Warner after everything with Bang, like, it's all money. And it, he's always been about money. And, it, you know, and all the lockdown stuff is because he's not making money because he's not playing shows. And, <laughs> Damn, you know, yeah. <laughs> It's all it's all been there. And I will also say, though, that like, yeah, this new record probably is going to have some like conspiracy shit on it. But like <laughs> that being said, Van has been remarkably consistent throughout his career. And I think that that's something that he does not get enough credit for because people love obviously Astral Weeks, love Moondance. And those are where the hits are. But like throughout the 70s. He hard knows the highway, great. Beat on fleece, great. Period of transition, underrated, especially the B side, great. You know, <laughs> common one in the '80s, um, great. And if like, and I'm telling you, especially if you're into the mystical shit, get into <laughs> '80s Van Morrison. Like he has this whole spiritual awakening. It's granted a little Christian, if and I don't know what anyone's beliefs are. I was raised Jewish, but you know, whatever. Jesus is a metaphor. It's fine. Don't listen to the conspiracy theory shit, but like, does that mean that Astral Weeks isn't the masterpiece that it is? Like, I don't think it takes away from that. Wow, yeah. really, really great points. And I think said very eloquently, there was so many great little quotes and everything you just said, I loved it. <laughs> yeah, I feel enlightened. <laughs>
we're gonna play you some music now, Izzy. Cool. I want our conversation to stay this crazy. All right. It's, it's gonna think... stay this crazy just now about some some music, and we'll see where where else it brings us. <laughs> Amazing. All right. So our first song is Drusilla Penny by the Carpenters. Ooh, I like those guys, guy mm-hmm. and girl. <laughs> Any crazy spiritual stuff you can bring in here is welcome. <laughs> Mate, I'm all for it. You've come to the right place. <laughs> <laughs> Drusilla Penny, what a name Are you sure you didn't make it up yourself? You're very pretty, yes you are But with all the junk you wear it's hard to tell Man, you must work hard to get your hair to look like that I don't need a horoscope to tell me where you're at Your family's probably given up on you Since you began to follow groups of long-haired rock and rollers I can hear your mother crying for her daughter Priscilla Penny, what a girl Where's the purpose to the crazy life you lead? It doesn't matter, after all You're so sure that instant love is all you need I've seen your face at least a thousand times You're always standing there behind the stages after concerts Waiting for an offer to be with someone after Drusilla Penny, how's your head? Do you ever wake up lonely in the night? It isn't easy for a girl When she can't decide if love is wrong or right I hope I live to see a change Could you ever really love, ever really care Ever really get it together No, no That was harsh, that was really mean (laughs) Can't get it together What I don't understand is that they're rock stars. I mean, that's a strong word for them because they've always been, they've made really soft and kind of lame music, but they tour. Why are they mad at Talk people? Talk about harsh. <laughs> no. But they're, they're mad at someone who's following a band, but you're a band. You can't, that's not, I don't get it. It's hypocritical. I don't know. I kind of liked it. I mean, I think that it's because she feels like she feels fake to them. I really liked it. There were definitely like a couple of lines that stood out that like, like the, the lines, um, where's the purpose to the crazy life you lead? It doesn't matter. After all, you're so sure that instant love is all you need. Like, That's I just thought cool. there was something like so beautiful about that. And like the idea of instant love, um, this is actually something that was on my mind in our earlier conversation, Izzy, we were talking about, you know, the art that like, like gives something to you an objective art. And I was thinking that like to really be able to experience art you have to put a lot of like you have to put work into it you have to give 
good music the concentration that it deserves to actually mm. experience that side of it. You know, if you are like Drusilla Penny and you're just looking for songs, you know, you're listening to 10 seconds and then skipping if it's not your vibe, you know, mm. you want to like instantly like, like it and then, you know, you're going to like the song, but it probably won't be something that's super influential and new. And the idea of like ignoring the possibility of like actually planning out your life and making these kind of big steps and like improving instead of doing that you're kind of just running around hoping that one day you're going to find one thing that's going to fix all your problems but mm -hmm. if you actually plan it out you're much more likely to have but honestly yeah actually no i like the song and i think the harshness is is in its favor like i think the craziness of these lyrics is pretty hardcore your family's probably given up on you <laughs> like whoa yeah um, I, and like just thinking about like that era, I mean, it it really like this Drusilla Penny character almost feels like the archetypal dropout hippie, Penny Lane kind of. You dude, know. dude, th that's dot. That's got to be a connection. Penny Lane and Drus like this song is about <laughs> Penny Lane. <laughs> I mean, right? I I think that's kind of like what they're going for. And like, there's almost some lines in here that appear to demonstrate like a bit of sympathy. Like the thing about like your family abandoning you like it, it's almost like this like freudian like psychoanalysis of like why people wind up like that like you you attach yourself to all this surface level shit getting your hair to look like this um you've got junk that's hard to sell you're looking for something instantaneous like instant pleasure but like you're lonely in the night and and you can't love truly because everything is so surface level and could you really care like no i don't know there, there's something in there well especially to to a musician who's like you know living out their dream and sharing their art to a lot of people and contributing so much to see like this groupie that's just always following them doing you know always in the same place but doing like the literally the opposite they're not contributing anything they're mm. just kind of there they're not consumers yeah they're not making anything for themselves yeah. but it's just like this obsessive consumer that you know that's not really who people make art for it's not the person that's going to show up at every concert right okay that's very that's a total valid read and i think what you're saying makes a lot of sense i do want to bring <laughs> up the Carpenters are the most middle of the road uh, bandwagon <laughs> jumping pop group. I think like my mom always laughed at them whenever because I was like I would you know dig up the old stuff and I'd bring up the Carpenters and she thought it was just so like silly and it is really silly. Like they kind of just do these like uh, novelty versions of like other genres. Like yeah. this is like such a little Beatles pastiche and all that stuff. And it's just like it's so funny for me for this square Richard Carpenter to be calling out this hippie chick. And it's like, wait a minute, you're not yeah. this like high and mighty artist, man. Everything you said is really true and beautiful, but I don't think of Richard as that kind of like altruistic- That's a really funny Giving point. rock star, yeah. Do you think he recognizes that? That's so interesting. Cause I mean, I never thought about it, but like the way that he's taking such a hard stance in this song is like really, like he has to have an opinion. Like that means he's definitely thought about it if he has these thoughts on his mind. Mm. Yeah, it makes you wonder like in the in the dark of night does he get lonely and does he is does he feel like I'm no better than Drusilla? Whoa. You know? <laughs> yeah. The song's about himself, but he has to project it on somebody else. Totally. That's a really interesting idea. It also seems uh from looking through like this is from pretty early in his career or in their career. 
So is it before they realized they were in the middle of the road and they thought maybe they could still like be that avant-garde band? I just, the fact that Carpenter's even having a vision at all aside from what the boardroom <laughs> says feels like, like generous. But the thing is, Might in be. their weird banality, they've made insane things that I do really yeah. love. Like, I do love some Carpenter songs with all of my heart. Um, it's also funny, I mentioned at the beginning that Female Species record, um, mm -hmm. but Karen Carpenter was like a part of Female Species at the beginning. No um, way, I didn't know When they were a high school band, yeah. Um, and then she went off to do a solo thing, and then that like is what the Carpenters were. <laughs> Wait, um, <laughs> Izzy, yeah. that's huge news. Oh Dude, my yeah. God. It's pretty wild. That's a really good call. I never, did not know that. Also, I don't know, there's that video going around, just like related Carpenter things, uh, the other day of Karen Carpenter drumming when she was like 17 or something. And she's just like doing these like insane drum fills. And you're like. <laughs> and of course, the young lady on the drums is Karen, his younger sister. Wow, like I, I'm with you. Like the what they end up producing is like, yeah, we'll do what you say kind of things. But like they are talented motherfuckers. Like, you know, and not anyone can just pull that off. Like even if they didn't have quite the same like spine as other artists to like do things that were necessarily original, like they did it well, you know? And it's not like they, for lack of skill. That's so cool that she's such a good drummer, man. I gotta change my mind. I mean, their voices are beautiful too. Like I, I definitely, they definitely are. Like, and there's a space for middle of the road stuff too. Like of they're course. good at what I've heard. So I don't, um, I don't want to come across as too mean. She's pretty gnarly, man. Like, that I don't know. so cool. Um, so this is actually a jukebox. So unfortunately it's not the original like B-side. This is Sing. Sing a song 
that's edgy (laughs) (laughs) i liked it try to think about how this plays into everything we were talking about because i love the general idea of it and then there's like the lines of like sing of happy not sad and that (laughs) is like is this like a mission statement for the carpenters like that kind of thing (laughs) i was thinking that i don't know if you guys saw this also but uh the song was written by uh joe raposo who was like the a frequent composer for Sesame Street, which just makes mm-hmm. way too much sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that AM didn't want it to come out as a single, but Richard was like, this is gonna be it. Like this is gonna be huge. And then it hit number three on the Billboard Hot 100. <laughs> Richard was right. <laughs> Richard was right. There's something about the Sesame Street thing is beautiful because obviously like it's such a noble show. Like the creation of Sesame Street is so beautiful yeah. to me. So when I reframe this song in my mind about literally teaching children about the concept of music and the powers that it has, that's a really beautiful concept. Yeah, and they're just not puppets. But like you could almost imagine them like turned into puppets for the <laughs> song, you know? <laughs> yeah. Carpenter Sesame Street character. I could see it. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, the whole time it says sing, it's like giving instructions. It doesn't really say why. But mm. how I'd like to interpret it is a kid uh, is like feeling down and sad and then these are like the instructions for like, you know, mm. how to feel better and it's like just sing a song, just, you know, if you're feeling like, you know, sad or like small and weak or a lot of things that, you know, kids might typically feel and like suffer from, you know, just like singing and letting your voice be heard no matter what is like an empowering message and of course since it's for those kids, it's bottled up in an extremely non-confrontational, like, yeah. almost banal way. But I think it has like a really sweet message. And I do have a bit of a personal connection to it because um, I made, or my dad rather, made like little home movies of me as like a very young child. And one of the first ones is like me singing a few songs and this is like the first song that plays. I don't actually what? sing this one. It's not actually this recording, so it's not perfect, but I think that it's good enough. It's like the Sesame Street version that plays. Um, but no, it's 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 adorable and gorgeous, and um, for my birthday, I asked that he, uh, like, actually, like, find all of the old movies on, like, you know, whatever CDs uh, he had, and put it on, like, some digital platforms. Now I have Aww. those videos, and I can watch them whenever Aww. I want. That is so wholesome. Um, My one thought in your saying that is like, it's just like something about the like 
the happy not sad because it's like if a kid is sad telling them like don't sing about your sadness like something about that feels very wrong and then it makes me think i don't know if either of you are familiar with uh like free to be you and me and the that rosie golan song or whatever like it's all right to cry and like that to me feels like way more healing to like a sad child than like sing a happy song you know it's a little like <laughs> Here, take some pills, kid. Like, you know, it's gonna be alright. Versus, like, let's, like, explore the vast array of human emotion and, like, it's all good, you know? Um, I am totally with you there, too. I remember, for me as a kid, when it came to that, it was the Happy and You Know It song. Mm. And just, like, you know, one day I was in a bad mood and I was like, am I really going to be forced to clap my hands? And, like, because that's participating, but, like, I don't feel happy. And they're like, clap your hands. And I was like, I guess I'll do it, but I don't know if I, I'm really happy right now, so am I just supposed to pretend that I'm happy, even if I feel sad? The existential dread appeared at a young age in this one. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. Really oh. <laughs> <laughs> I can attest to that. <laughs> I like the idea of like Sesame Street and just pop songs in general being like having lessons to them. And like, yeah. that's like a really, really woke message to give someone. Like, Try like crying because you can undo a lot of the other damages of society if you get to kids young enough and, te and teach them these like actually beautiful human truths that I wish you know I got to experience. I should I should plug the organization that I'm working for right now called the Mosaic Project, which does exactly that, mainly focused at like uh, you know anti-racist, anti-bias training for kids like in fourth and fifth grade. Um, but then a lot of it is also for things like that, like literally one of and they use music a lot to do that teaching um and one of the songs is called it's all right to cry exactly about <laughs> what we've been talking about we had free to be you and me as like a on vhs or something in my house when we were growing up and um that definitely i think like inform my you know relationship to emotion having had that song and information from a young age too you know and the relationship to music, it seems like. Yeah. It teaches you that this is a place where that we stuff is okay. We get to talk about that stuff, absolutely. We now have Gotta Travel On, written by Paul Clayton, performed by Billy Grammer. Right 
Wanna see my honey Wanna see her bad She's the best girl This poor boy ever had I've made around And played around This old town too long Summer's almost gone Yes, winter's coming on I've made around And played around This old town too long And I feel like It seems like there are multiple plots going on at once in these lyrics. Multi-dimensional space travel. <laughs> oh <Yes>. yeah, <laughs> I like that idea. That's where I feel like it's either disjointed or it's like, it's supposed to be with the travel on kind of theme, you know, just little vignettes into different lives. And I'm not really sure which it is. Yeah, in the beginning, I was immediately endeared to the narrator, like the very first line, I just love I love the terminology of things ending and all of that stuff. I'm such a sucker for like the heavy emotional stuff like that. So I was really invested <laughs> in this one singular guy that I kind of made up in my mind. And then they started kind of going on these different little pieces of information that didn't all add up to me. So I like your idea of vignettes now. And you're right, they're all bound together by the theme of moving. So I'm curious because I'm looking at the lyrics and I'm not, I, I think it could be the same. It could just be Johnny. So Johnny's in the chain gang, but he's also yeah. being chased by cops, but he also is trying to go to see his woman. Well, that's the thing. It's like he was in the chain gang too long, so he's got to travel on. So he travels, but that means that he had to like somehow escape the chain gang. Mm. And so now the police are running after him. They're coming for him because he escaped the chain gang. He's got to travel. And he's traveling and he wants to go home because that's where his money is. Where does Papa come in? That's just to establish that there are people missing him. Yeah. He's probably that's the same place his honey is. Yeah, I didn't consider that uh, that Johnny was like the third person of the main character. That does make it a lot more cohesive. So I, I appreciate the plot a lot more now. <laughs> yeah, there's some interesting narrational, you know, changes where like, because it's I, but then maybe Johnny is I. And the, the, the force is being from a different point of view. Because that's the only way that this whole Papa section can fit into the rest of it, and the rest of it is, like, you know, in first person about him. So that does make the most sense, I think. That kind of stuff is so cool to me, and I think about that a lot, with the idea of, like, every time you restart a song, you restart the story, <laughs> all the people are alive again, and they're all in the beginning. And that's how it is with all storytelling mediums, but I'm just most partial to the song. Yeah, I mean, and that's what is, like, one of the most, I think, like, incredible pieces of genius in Astral Weeks is that it opens with the title track and, and it's all about to be born again and like the record was literally intended to flow in such a way where it ends and then it's literally the cycle of rebirth like you flip it over back to side A and life begins anew once again. Because uh, that, that last song is so concerned with death <laughs> and the oncoming of death. Oh, that's really cool. That's a really good way of looking at it. Yeah. I didn't come up with that, by the way. It's a good observation. Do you guys know I Fought the Law by the country, Bobby Fullerton 4, and then covered by The Clash later? Yeah, of course. That The lyrics, I think, are pretty similar to this one. 
Mm-hmm. And that one, the, the line that always stuck out with me of that song was he's like, she said, she's the best baby that I ever had. And in this one, it's she's the best girl this poor boy ever had. So I definitely think. And that one's also obviously about <laughs> fighting the law. And so is this one. So I think there's some uh, companionship here. Yeah. All right. Uh, so this is Chasing a Dream, written by Dick Flood, performed again by Billy Graham. been chasing a dream, loving only you. I've been waiting in vain, waiting just for you. came my way hoping that your love would be mine someday I finally learned that you're not for me at last I'm awake and it's plain to see I've been wasting my time a dream Now the dream is through I've turned down each new love that came my way Hoping that your love would be mine someday I finally learned that you're not for me at last i'm awake and it's plain to see i've been wasting my time wanting only you i've been chasing a dream refreshingly honest because <laughs> usually they don't admit that they don't have a chance with these things but this one he's very aware yeah it's pretty heartbreaking it's interesting it's definitely got me thinking about like what what does it really mean to be a dream he makes it clear that it turns out that they're not actually right for each other and you know when you when you think about dreams like you can dream about things that in the dream feel great because you're, you know, subconscious or whatever's at work when you're dreaming can ignore a lot of blatant factors. But mm-hmm. in the dr- so in the dream it can feel like it's great when in real life like that would never be feasible. Let him be heartbroken. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the sunk cost thing, like the idea of if I keep spending more time on this, I have to because I've already spent so much time. When when you're in a place of pain, there's two real solutions. It's like. You can either give up on this girl or they'll get together. 
and giving up on the girl will end the pain. It's just in a different way. And people are so focused on this idea of like, I've got to be victorious in quotes here. Like yeah. it becomes this idea mm-hmm. of like winning and conquering. But this is a beautiful, like solemn recognition of like, mm. I'm going to resolve this problem by letting it be, which is really, it sounds like all he can do in the situation because if they don't like you, they don't like you. You test it out and it doesn't work and you let go. And it, it almost didn't feel to me like they were trying something and it didn't work out. It was that like he thought it was just a thing in time and, and that he just waited all this time, wasted all this time waiting. Yeah, you never hear that idea of through. Like we hear a lot of songs like this, obviously. We were talking before the show about like the genre of country just dominating every song we listen to. But this mm-hmm. one felt like uniquely different in that way. Like, And usually there's not even a resolution to it. Which I think about songwriting in terms of like trying to appeal to the largest audience and things like that. And you're trying to appeal to this vague audience of like desire. Like people will buy the song, they will relate to it because there's open desire. But this one is in some ways a little bit harder to sell because there's also resolution, which might be harder to relate to for some people. Mm, yeah, most people don't have a healthy relationship with that. Which is so interesting because then it's like pop music is going to reflect whatever the status quo is in some ways because that's the easiest way to connect to people so it'll kind of carry forward this narrative of unhealthy relationships and obsessions and things like that Dude, totally. mm-hmm. that's what the good outskirts art is for that kind of thing you know mm-hmm. all right i know riley's hype for this one because we cheated a little bit but what do we got no one will have to know this is the wanderer by oh, dion yeah. I love this guy. I 
of Dion's songs are about partying and being promiscuous, and then the other half are about him being sad that a girl cheated on him. <laughs> you know what? I kind of love that, that that fits with my interpretation of what this song is about. <laughs> I'm interested to hear it. Essentially, I mean, a lot of it is going to come from the line where he finally says, and when I find myself fallen for some girl, I hop right into that car of mine, I drive around the world, right? He's just trying to run away from this kind of, these feelings and this commitment that, like, might be there. He's very afraid of that. But the natural question is, why? How come? And one thing that I've, that I noticed is when he talks about how, like, the girls don't even know his name, and then he goes on in pretty much the whole rest of the song, saying, especially in the next verse, saying a lot of different names that he mm. seems to know. <laughs> and, you know, I guess it's possible that they're, like, totally, like, you know, stock girls, and they could be, like, he's just saying, like, whatever names he can come up with. But I think that he's actually saying their real names, and, you know, there are four names, like, pretty densely name populated in that uh, verse there. So I think that maybe he gets more emotionally attached than the people that he's with, or that's what he's worried about. That's a great, it's <laughs> yeah, a really good read. Fear is a really big thing, and you brought that up. And fear is like the opposite of like masculine man or whatever, and they're so taught to not be afraid. But so many of the decisions made in the song are obviously made out of a deep fear of commitment or lack of commitment or all of those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, I was, there's like a song facts thing about it, and I guess Dion's given a number of interviews on the song. He, he seems to think it's pretty deep. It was like his version of Bo Diddley's I'm a Man. He like, at the time, was just kind of doing songs that the record label wanted him to do, but that um, he, he heard that track and was like, I want my version of that. It's actually like such a sad song, roaming from town to town, go through life without a care two fists of iron but going nowhere yeah there's something really lonely about um, being so detached and not being able to like invest or commit in connections to people and for a song to be called the wanderer and then have a line that says i'm going nowhere like that's that's heavy like yeah. he, this is literally doing nothing for him he's he's ultimately just going in circles I wanted to note that uh, Dion has an album, which he released the year after this song came out, called Lovers Who Wander. Um, and that so song, I, really f- I really feel like the idea of wandering really took a hold of him. But that's the thing. The title track of that album is about him being mad that his girlfriend's wandering, but then he finds solace in the fact that she's going to go to hell because she was not faithful. <laughs> the place, the, he says, the place for lovers who wander, like that's, he like found religion and he realized people who wander are going to be punished eternally if I'm remembering correctly. All right, this is No One Knows by uh, Dion and the the Belmonts. Oh, I love this song, man. This is two of my favorite ones that we've ever had on this show. All right, Riley, impress us with your knowledge about it. (laughs) I don't know much, we'll see. And when I smile, it's just 
process and stuff I was really tasteless about things and this is one of the first songs that inspired me to kind of slow down which kind of became my whole thing later on because now I'm into all the sad stuff but I made a playlist based off of this song because it's just this kind of like it's like a weird sober side of rock and roll basically like the kind of hungover after party thing and the gentleness to it and how quiet it is like lyrically and sonically it's just so, like compared to the wanderer literally it's the other side of the spectrum it's like tired kind of strung out and it really spoke to me and still does speak to me about like that tenderness tenderness is definitely the right word that little piano melody that kept kind of that motif that kept coming back um it kind of does the same thing for me as like the xylophone on like sunday morning by the velvet underground it's like a similar sort of uh oral or audio sensation but you've got this really sweet melody that's sort of like guiding you through that suffering. Yeah, I think there's something like really beautiful about how the whole song is about repressing emotion, but the song itself expresses that emotion. Yeah. So there's like an interesting conflict there where ultimately it just feels like it's his soul singing to you instead of like, you know, his face since he's like so so directly described his face as being like stoned and not actually letting anything on the craziest and dumbest and probably very intentional thing is like he's mad that people don't know what he's going through but he also refuses to tell them it's yeah. like wait <laughs> right you can't get mad about people not understanding your pain if you're not going to articulate it like it's such a like a uh, the dark side of depression really like a self-fulfilling cycle where you're really just making things harder for yourself 
that's where I feel like the, the sing a happy song, don't cry thing might come into play where if you don't teach people that they can healthily express their emotions, they won't be able to. We have to choose uh, two of the three records to keep and one of them to put in a not as good place. <laughs> oh man, I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, sometimes we don't describe it super well and then people think we're gonna like burn the third one or <laughs> melt it or whatever. No, we're saving all of the music, but we just like to force ourselves to choose two that we prefer over the other. I was gonna go two and three. Ooh. Ooh. I guess I'm the hot take. <laughs> yeah, what are you most proud of now that you're working on? I'm working on something that I can't like talk about because it doesn't exist outside of me yet, but I'm working on a book actually. I'm, I'm writing a book. Whoa. It's honestly somewhat similar in a lot of ways to this podcast, or at least the questions that you presented me. The premise of the book is that I got a bunch of my friends to give me questions, and it's a collection of essays that I, in which I answer the questions that I was given. So there's 16 total, um, and I'm gonna make it into like a, a little like zine, chapbook kind of thing um, with some illustrations and stuff. So that that's something that's in the works, and I'm hoping will be out uh, maybe early fall. That's, that sounds beautiful. When it becomes a, a thing you can talk about, totally send it to us. And we'll Absolutely, I would love that. You're the best. That's very sweet. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Izzy. This has been so wonderful. Yeah, it's really been a pleasure. Um, thank you both so much for having me. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And remember, keep spinning. Down the Cypress Avenue with the childlike vision sleeping into view The clicking, clacking of the high heel shoe Ford and Fitzroy